Nearly 20 years ago, my partner Gerald and I packed up my dorm room and moved to Chicago from our small towns in Michigan. Like, I literally left my graduation with gown and cap and hopped into the U-Haul. We'd found a little garden apartment in Wrigleyville for around $7.50 a month. An apartment, by the way, that now goes for over two grand. i would always wanted to live in the city and dreamed of New York. But September 11th was still very fresh, so we detoured to the Windy City and haven't looked back. This was everything I wanted. Wrigleyville was right next to Boys Town, the gay district of Chicago. Our back door led to the alleyway and a dumpster, which housed a family of rats that would scuttle up the brick walls whenever I threw out the trash. I loved it. Our dreams were happening! A few blocks away was Charlie's, a gay country western bar that had line dancing during the evenings and transitioned to a typical gay dance club around 10pm. And there were drag shows on Thursday nights. Gerald and I found ourselves at Charlie's nearly every night after work. We were young and cute, and were living the boys' town life. We'd grown close with the bartenders, including a drag queen named Minerva Rex. I was also somewhat insufferable, I probably still am as it related to Broadway trivia. I'd quiz the bartenders asking them to name any musical, and I'd sing a song from it. Oh, don't make me sing. Yes, everyone is dying to hear you play. Yes, everyone is dying, but don't make me sing. Anyway, one evening Minerva approached me and asked if I'd be interested in joining their drag review the next month. It was Broadway-themed. Now, I'd never done drag, but I was cute and drunk and said yes. Minerva became my drag mother and helped me choose my name. Putsanya Vig. I guess because I studied German in college and was still buzzing from my recent study abroad in Heidelberg. There were two group numbers I was to be a part of. And I had a solo. My choosing. And of course, I chose Norma. With one look. The Patty version, thank you very much. I rehearsed on my own in our garden apartment, making sure I blocked my performance to accommodate collecting tips. A tip from my drag mother. I didn't have a costume, but Minerva assured me she'd take care of it. And wouldn't you know it, in the evening of showtime, I joined the ladies in the makeshift dressing room, and Minerva revealed my ensemble. It was a perfect recreation of the Anthony Powell robe and turban. I was floored. Where did you get this? Oh, some queen who died last year. I inherited her costumes. I hope to do this fellow Norma proud. Then a gaggle of gays surrounded me and did my makeup. I looked flawless and powerful. My dream of becoming Norma as a 16-year-old in my parents' living room was becoming a reality. A few quick shots of my new drag family and my number came. And I felt my fantasy. There were no nerves, just me living in the moment. I got the tips, and without sounding too boastful, I stopped the show. No one was expecting what I brought to the dusty, cowboy boot-dented stage of Charlie's that evening. Even I was surprised. This performance was years in the making. Now, I won't mention those group numbers. I was pretty much a hot mess in those. Unbeknownst to me, a person from Chicago Cable Access was there recording the performance that evening. And months later, as I was cleaning the apartment, I saw the Broadway drag review appear on our janky TV, and I quickly popped in a VHS and hit record. 
I am so glad I did. It remains a cherished memory. Minerva has since passed away, and all of this seems like a lifetime ago. I haven't done drag since because I felt it couldn't get any better than that. What a joyful, unexpected experience. Sadly, the same cannot be said for the experience of our original Norma. I'm Broadway Bob, and this is The Sunset Project. Episode 4, London. And I'm going to allow the last word on our program coming to you live from this boy tonight to come from Patty Lapone, who has been hailed to the length and breadth of this whole town tonight. So many congratulations on the role of Norma Desmond. How, how you must feel pretty shattered. I'm, I, I echo Dan's word, words, relief and euphoria, uh, especially relief. How challenging is it? Because it's such a well-known role in the movie, so people have a yardstick in a way. So what was it like for you to create this role? Well, you all put the pressure on me. Do you know what I mean? Um, the media uh, puts the pressure on an actor. Uh, an actor is given a role to interpret. And then everybody else tells you it should be difficult. Um, I was told that I had uh, a lot of pressure on me, and that's when I realized I did. I was enjoying discovering the role until somebody said, you have a lot of pressure on <laughs> And um, I am, this has been, I have to say, this has been the most joyous, happy experience for me. Um, Happy. When we left off, Patty had been negotiating her contract with Rugg, and Lloyd Webber's production company, and things got bloody. Among the headaches was the knowledge that a mysterious L.A. production of Sunset Boulevard was set to open prior to Broadway, and Lapone was not going to be a part of it. Glenn Close was. But Patty and her team worked a contract that guaranteed her Broadway opening following London. All the while, rumors were swirling about who would actually play Norma on Broadway, Glenn or Patty. Rumors fueled by the very machine that was negotiating Patty's contract. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to London Heathrow Terminal 5. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened until the fastened seatbelt signs have been switched off. You may now make your... As soon as Patty landed in London, she requested a formal, in-person meeting with Andrew and his team. She laid out her concerns hoping that having them hear from her in person, versus via her agent, would make them actually listen. Rather, she got polite British platitudes, letting her know that she had nothing to worry about. You are our Norma, Patty. She left that meeting feeling even more dejected. But she was a professional, and she had a job to do. Rehearsals were already underway, and she was ready to just roll up her sleeves and get cracking. However... Andrew had a few surprises. He pulled her into a recording studio to record her two big numbers. She hadn't even unpacked yet, and there she was, in front of a microphone, wondering if she was getting paid for this impromptu session. And then, another surprise! An impromptu cocktail party with a production team. Drained and jet-lagged, Patty went along with it, when she entered the venue, she heard a familiar voice in the sound system. Her voice. Yes, that recording session was a means to capture background music for the very party thrown in her honor. As Patty describes in her memoir, she felt like an organ grinder's monkey, dancing and performing when the handle was cranked. Those same recordings, by the way, were used in radio adverts promoting the show a few months later. 
Lepona said that she was never paid for them, which is emblematic of Rugg's treatment of performers as property. But back to the rehearsal room. Patty and her director, Trevor Nunn, were very clear on what they wanted Norma to be. Number one, not a caricature. They wanted this to be a real flesh-and-blood person, not some grotesque spectacle. And therein lied a big problem. Now, collective consciousness paints Norma as a freak show, a la Carol Burnett with spider-like eyelashes and a cigarette holder falling down a staircase. Oh, Max! Max, don't let the autograph hounds hurt me, please! Max, please! Do not worry, madam. I will protect you, as I have day and night for the past 40 years. Thank you, Max. Hello, who are you? Hey, Max. Hello, who am I? You are Nora Desmond. I don't want anyone to know I'm here, not even me. Do you understand? The concept of Norma Desmond can easily become parody at best and defensive at worst. It's easy and lazy to lean into the trope of the aging cougar clawing at her youth while throwing herself at a disinterested younger man. It may be fascinating to watch, like a real housewife's catfight, but it's not a great representation for women. The brilliance of Wilder's original vision is that Norma was a talented, striking, and vibrant person. And the Hollywood machine broke her. It was less about her ugliness and more about the ugliness of the business. Now, I sadly never saw Patty in the part, but I've devoured all the fragments of her performance I could find. And I could see that humanity is what she was going for. She played Norma with great pathos and heart. The tragedy was watching this real human have a breakdown as her dreams collapsed around her. The problem is, the show the creators made did not ultimately support this portrayal. What worked for Patty at Simminton in those early workshops was it was a bare-bones production. A stage, a piano, with an orchestral backing track and the bigger numbers, and simple props. It was about the actors and the audience telling a story. And Patty and Trevor worked to maintain this human, honest foundation. And by all accounts, the rehearsal room was a productive and healthy reprieve from the external rug craziness. But when the actors moved from the London rehearsal space to the Adelphi Theater, things suddenly didn't add up. Patty, who is entirely capable of giving a demented over-the-top performance, was doing what she was directed to do and believed in. A real, honest performance. But this was gobbled up by the scenery, costumes, and lighting. And a behemoth floating mansion with a mind of its own. So let's talk about that scenery. You there! Why are you so late? This way. John Napier, who had created the Jellicle Junkyard and Cats and the Rotating Lamez Barricade, was known for bold choices. His main concept for Sunset was that infamous, floating, Norma Desmond mansion. I'm not exaggerating when I say this set piece, which descended from the flyspace and floated forward when called for, like a UFO, was one of the most opulent things to ever grace a stage. It's staggering. It's a Rococo wet dream, featuring a serpentine-like staircase, a gilded pipe organ, and photos and busts of Norma peppered throughout. These photos and busts, by the way, were changed out based on the actress playing Norma. It's no wonder the show's budget, at around $8 million for the London production, broke records. Now this mansion had some issues. It was controlled by radio frequencies that often were intercepted by police radios, taxi cabs, and cellular signals, 
This resulted in the mansion jerking up and down at will, while Patty and her co-star Kevin Anderson were in a scene. As Patty says in her book, Anyone in the West End passing by the Adelphi could give me a thrill ride just by picking up the phone. Due to these technical issues, the show delayed its opening by two weeks, but Patty and the cast persisted to pull off this beast. Now, there were other issues, primarily the score. To me, based on what I've seen of this initial London production and the cast recording, it felt underwritten, which is kind of nutty to say about a mostly sung-through show, but there are several transition moments where Patty runs up and down this giant staircase to make a quick costume change to complete silence. It feels awkward and, well, unglamorous. And then there is the ending. You know, the I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. If you know the show, and I'm guessing you do if you're listening to this podcast, you are fully aware of how the final moments of this musical close out. Norma has reached full mental breakdown. The divide between reality and fantasy is gone. And she believes she's shooting her film, Salome. The onlookers, the police, and the press are her film crew. And she gives her infamous speech. I can't go on the scene. I'm too happy. May I say a few words, Mr. DeMille? I can't tell you how wonderful it is to be back in the studio making a picture. I promise you, I will never desert you again. This is my life. It always will be. There is nothing else. Just us. And the cameras... And all you wonderful people out there in the dark. And now, Mr. DeMille, I am ready for my close-up. And then, after a pause, she marches forward as the police and press squad watch in horror in full Salome getup, smeared lipstick, and belts a reprise of With One Look. It gives me goosebumps. And by the way, that's Betty Buckley as Norma Desmond. The original London production had none of this. Rather, it closes with Norma giving her Mr. DeMille speech, and then she just slowly walks center stage while the orchestra plays her out. And blackout. This new ending, including all the finishing touches, such as the incidental music for those staircase races to make a costume change, were integrated into the LA production ten months later. I truly feel if Patty had opened her production with those changes they used in L.A., things may have ended up differently for her, particularly the ending sequence. As Mama Rose famously said, If you end with a strong finish, they'll forgive you for anything. To add insult to injury, the Salome headdress they gave Patty for this crucial moment overcame her. It was nearly as tall as she was, and Lapone is a short woman. She struggled with it. I recall one person in a theater message board saying that the night they saw it, Patty's headdress got caught on the scenery. Lapone continued down the staircase as it dangled away on the ornate John Napier sconces behind her. 
I say all of this to outline how the physicality of this production, along with the unfinished nature of the piece in general, cut away at Patty's performance. Welcome back to the uh, Savoy Hotel here, and as you can hear, it is mayhem. What is a who's who, really? On July 12, 1993, opening night in London arrived. McIntosh is here, naturally enough, with the best of interest. Cliff Richard is here. We've already talked to Shirley Bassey, Angela Rippon. Oh, Bruce Oldfield. The opening night party, across the street from the Adelphi at the Savoy Hotel, glittered from all the stars in attendance. And right now, a lady who knows exactly what, it, what it's like to have a role created for her, in this case it's Evita, and an action of Elaine Page. There was buzz, so much buzz. ...of the cast album. That's an exclusive play here on Radio 2. And if you're just joining us, quite late on this... Rug knew that this was a press event, another headline maker in a growing list of headlines. Roger Moore, who thinks he's talking to another station, but as I'm going out live, I'm going to grab him away, and Michael Ball, and you were listening to that on headphones, so what was the verdict of Patti LuPone's version? She is absolutely sensational, sensational. I, th I actually think she puts more meaning into it than, than Streisand did, I prefer the uh, version, it's got real... I wanted to say a dirty word then, but yeah, I, I, I would say the same thing because I wasn't in Prince of Tides either. <laughs> Billy Wilder himself, with his wife Audrey, were also in attendance opening night. Wilder, by all accounts, had never really been a huge fan of the show in its workshop format, but he was pleased with the result in London, mainly because Christopher Hampton's book tracked to the beats of Wilder's original script. There was no surprise happy ending, as Gloria Swanson attempted in her failed musical adaptation. And then the reviews came in. Many were positive. As Matt Wolf in Variety wrote, Lapone gives us the screen goddess as grotesque, at once seductive and suicidal, and her final descent down the staircase into madness chills the audience in a way Lloyd Webber's closing crescendo can only approximate. End quote. However, the New York Times' Frank Rich, who was personally invited by Andrew for press night, had this to say. Miss Lapone is a gifted actress, whose vocal pyrotechnics are especially idolized by the British, not least because their own musical theater stars can rarely match them. Yet despite her uncanny mimicry of Gloria Swanson's speaking voice and her powerhouse delivery of the score's grand, if predictable, ballads, she is miscast and unmoving as Norma Desmond. Until the final scenes when she is given a fright wig more suggestive of radiation treatment than advancing years, Miss Lapone acts and looks her own spry 40-something. End quote. Miscast and unmoving. Ouch. Yes, one could certainly argue Patty was simply miscast. It happens to the best artists out there. However, based on the performance Patty ultimately gave at the end of her run, when she was at her wit's end due to the ensuing drama, more to come on this, I promise, I feel she had it in her. But regardless... This review by Frank Rich set Andrew into a tailspin, particularly the comments around his score. He began to shift his eyes and his energy to the upcoming L.A. production. This was his grand opus, and nothing would stand in his way, contractually or otherwise. <laughs> 